This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Thank you, Ian, and good afternoon to you all. Before we come to think about the three wise men who form the title of this afternoon's talk, I'd like to start by thinking about wisdom itself. What is wisdom, and what does it mean to be wise? And what is it that marks somebody out as someone who is considered as being a wise man? Well, I guess really wisdom is something that we don't refer to very much nowadays, and that almost suggests that wisdom is a, an old-fashioned thing. But the Bible talks a lot about wisdom, and it's important because as we read the Bible, we find that wisdom is something which God looks for in those who are trying to serve him in their lives. Well, if we look at wisdom in a dictionary, we're able to read the following definition. Wisdom is experience and knowledge together with power of applying them, sagacity, prudence, common sense. So I guess, in a sense, wisdom is the application of knowledge, isn't it? it it's, it's showing understanding or insight in the way in which we conduct ourselves. Wisdom is the ability to perform the correct plan, to gain the desired results, a, a correct way to proceed. And sometimes the Bible refers to those with technical skills as being wise people. In the Old Testament, for example, there were two men called Bezalel and Aholiab, who men um, were described by God as, of, as having wisdom. And they had the ability to work in gold and in silver and in brass and to, to cut and set stones and to carve timber. All skills which were needed to construct the various parts of the tabernacle and its furnishings. And God describes those men as having wisdom. But more typically, wisdom is used in the Bible to describe how we come to make choices or decisions. It's the thinking process which goes on in our minds and the things which influence those decisions. And in the Bible, wisdom is generally considered as being one of two types. We read about the wisdom of men, sometimes called earthly wisdom, and we read about the wisdom of God, godly wisdom. And as we shall see, they don't agree. In fact, they're very much in conflict with each other. Go with me, if you will, to James chapter 3. And we read there in James chapter 3 of, well, James asks a question. He says in verse 13 of James chapter 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? I'm going to continue in a minute, but let, let's be honest. We're all wise on occasions in our own eyes, aren't we? We all like to think that we, we've got the best understanding of something or, or the best way of doing something or perhaps a greater appreciation of something. So we often consider, often consider ourselves as being wise. But James goes on to say that depending on how we present ourselves to those around us, that shows very clearly what type of wisdom we have within us. In other words, wisdom isn't just intellectual knowledge but it's also behavioural. So let, let's read from verse 13 of James chapter 3. And we read there, Who is wise and understanding among you? 
by his good conduct. Incidentally, I'm reading all from the um, English Standard Version this afternoon. So, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, how we present ourselves to those around us is a demonstration of the type of wisdom which is within the hearts of each one of us. If in our lives we show forth the characteristics of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, then that will mark us out as having worldly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. But if we're motivated in trying to serve the Lord, then our aim should be that of showing forth the characteristics of peace and of gentleness, of mercy and of good works, of impartiality and sincerity. Those are the things which mark out a man of God and they're a practical demonstration of someone who has godly wisdom. Well, the Apostle Paul also considers the subject of wisdom and the difference between godly wisdom and, and worldly wisdom. Come back with me, if you will, to the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians and chapter 3. <clears throat> and Paul says there, verse 18... Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So Paul writes about the wisdom of this world as being the thinking and the understanding of men as compared with a godly way of thinking about things. And he goes on to say that there are lots of people in the world around us who are very dismissive of the, of the message of hope that's found in the pages of, of the Bible. And they prefer to work things out for themselves. They're not willing to accept, they're not even willing to consider the wisdom of God or God's way of doing things. And of course that was the case right back in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? Adam and Eve had been given instructions and guidance by God as to what they could do and what they couldn't do. There were very few rules, but Adam and Eve took it upon themselves to ignore the advice that God had given them, and they chose to do things their own way. They thought they knew best. And so it was that in their own wisdom, they sinned before the Lord, and in time it led to their demise. And so often, men refused to turn to the Lord and to seek his help and guidance and to do things in God's way, instead preferring to do things their own way. But we only have to look around us in the society um, in which we live, in the world in general, to appreciate that man's wisdom, man's way of doing things, it doesn't work, does it? The world is full of evil and wickedness, and so often man's wisdom demonstrates itself as being selfish and disordered and evil, just as we've read in James. And those characteristics of, of purity and sincerity, peace and gentleness, and, the, and, and those other qualities of godly wisdom, which we, read, which we read about there in James, are, are harder to find in the world about us. So that's wisdom. Worldly wisdom and godly wisdom in um, a, a, and the contrast that we see about them, or between them. <clears throat> 
So what about our three wise men who we're going to talk about this afternoon? And our minds probably go to those verses that we read together from the Gospel of Matthew, where we read that, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And the account then goes on, as we've read, to describe how following the inquiry to King Herod and the advice given by the chief priests and the scribes of the people and the guidance of the star, the men then continued on their journey to Bethlehem, where they met with Mary and her young child. And they fell down and they worshipped Jesus and presented to him very special gifts of gold and of frankincense and myrrh, which, um, after which they then departed and they made their journey home. And actually, that is all that we know about what happened on that occasion. That's all the scriptures tell us about what happened. That account only appears in the Gospel of Matthew. It doesn't appear in the other Gospels. And there is so little that we know. We don't know exactly where the men came from, other than the East. We don't know their names. We don't know how soon after the birth of Jesus they visited. In fact, we don't even know for sure how many wise men there were. It's only the fact that there are three gifts which suggests that there were three men. And how did they come to understand the significance of the star? Or, or how they knew um, what were appropriate gifts to bring can only be a matter of conjecture. And whilst the men are described as being wise, it's impossible to say if they were wise in God's eyes or simply described as being wise because they had the knowledge and the understanding to recognise Jesus for who he really was and chose to come and worship him. But that simple account in Matthew's Gospel has undergone a great deal of embellishment over the years, hasn't it? And it's been added to in various ways. And uh, particularly by the Reverend John Henry Hopkins, who was an Episcopal bishop born in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. And it was in 1857 that he wrote the music and penned the words to that well-known carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. A carol which is now sung throughout the world as part of the Christmas, as part of Christmas services everywhere. And in some ways, the, the words of the carol are quite helpful. And sa uh, sadly, though, in other ways, they don't accurately reflect the teaching of the Bible. One thing that the carol does do is to pick up on the meaning and the significance of the gifts. The gold which spoke of the kingship of Jesus. Gold was always associated with kings, and it also links with the testing of faith. And there was frankincense, which suggests a life of prayer and worship. And frankincense was an important part of uh, making the, the incense, which was used in the temple worship in the Old Testament. And there was myrrh, which speaks of the death of Jesus. And myrrh was used in the anointing of bodies for burial. So we could certainly spend a useful afternoon um, looking at the significance of the gifts which the wise men brought and show how each of them uh, shows an important aspect of the life of the Lord Jesus. But to spend our time thinking about these wise men would actually result in a very short talk because, as we've seen, the Bible tells us hardly anything other than uh, that very short account which we've read. The fact is, and this point is important, the scriptures always tell us what we need to know. They tell us what's important and therefore we can assume that in Matthew's Gospel, where that's the only account as I've said of the visit of the wise men, that the significance of that account was of what they brought and the fact that they recognised Jesus for who he was and came and worshipped him. And the significance of that far outweighed who the men were 
or anything else that we might like to know about them. We're simply not told we're not meant to know. So if we're not going to talk about those wise men, who are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to spend our time thinking about three other men in Scripture which we um, read about in different parts of Scripture, all of whom are presented to us as being wise, men who had godly wisdom, and therefore men that we can learn from in terms of our, our own discipleship. And the first of those is one of the, the early kings of, of, of God's people, the Jews. Now their first king, other than God himself who ruled over them, was, was Saul. It was, he was a man who had all the qualities which the people were looking for in a king, but unfortunately was, was lacking in the qualities required to, to, to rule on God's behalf. And following King Saul came King David, a man who was handpicked by God and throughout his life demonstrated commitment and determination to serve God and to rule over God's people in a way which was fair and just and helped them in serving the Lord. Well, he was by no means perfect, but God forgave him of his sin and described him as being a man after his own heart. And that was a high accolade indeed, wasn't it? And then came David's son. And David's son was called Solomon. And it's Solomon who we're going to think about for a few minutes because of all the men in history, it's probably Solomon who is best known for his wisdom. Solomon became king at an early age. He was probably no more than 21. But to be a king requires knowledge and understanding. And I'm sure that at 21, Solomon felt that a great burden of responsibility had been placed on his shoulders, especially as his father David had entrusted him with the responsibility of, of building a temple for the Lord. But well, we read about Solomon in uh, the first book of Kings. So come with me now to the first book of Kings and chapter 3. And we're told there in chapter 3 that Solomon loved the Lord and that he walked in the statutes of his father David. So he made a good start. And we read these words in uh, verse, verse 5. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. So God was pleased with what he saw in Solomon and he offered to help him in carrying out his responsibilities. Verse 6, Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness and in uprightness, excuse me, uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his, on, on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. But your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? So Solomon's response to, to, to the Lord when asked what he, what, what he would like was that Solomon showed a great awareness of his responsibilities in ruling over God's people and he wanted to do it well. And so it was that he asked for wisdom and understanding to be able to rule effectively. He was asking for the knowledge and understanding necessary to help him fulfil his responsibilities 
in his role of king. And God granted him his request. He gave him the ability to understand the principles of fairness and respect which were set out in the law of Moses and to be able to apply that knowledge in the context of his rulership of the people. Later in the same chapter we see an example of how Solomon used his God-given wisdom to, to resolve a matter which had arisen between two women. And at the end of the chapter we read these words in, in verse 28 of chapter 3. Um, and all Israel heard of the judgment, this is the judgment concerning the women and the baby, all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So Solomon was ruling in a way which was pleasing to the Lord, a way which showed him to be pure and peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and of good fruits, impartial and sincere. All those qualities of godly wisdom which we read about back in James. And Solomon went on to do great things, didn't he? He carefully carried out the instructions of his father David in building the temple for the Lord. He established the temple service and he ruled fairly and justly over God's people in adopting the principles which had been set out by God himself in the law of Moses. But wisdom is something which has to be worked at. And we've said that godly wisdom is very different to worldly wisdom. And sadly, the wisdom of the world can sometimes rub off on us or become more appealing than the wisdom which God is looking for in our lives. And Solomon is an example of a man who, despite his understanding of a godly way of doing things, was drawn away by worldly wisdom. Solomon chose to make alliances with the nations that were round and about, and that involved taking foreign wives. That, wives, that often um, sealed a deal between two, two different nations. And worldly wisdom would reason that that would would be a really sensible thing to do. But God had warned his people time and again that they were to keep themselves completely separate from the peoples around them. Solomon was starting to take things into his own hands. He was starting to be influenced by the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God. Having built the temple... Solomon then chose to build a house for himself. Very sensible, we might think. But Solomon's own house was was nearly twice the size of the Temple of the Lord, and it took over twice as long to build. And it even included a large section uh, um, as a home for Pharaoh's daughter to live in, who he'd taken to wife. So all the time we see the wisdom of the world and the treasures of this world starting to influence Solomon's thinking. And over time, and very sadly, Solomon fell away from serving the Lord. He took to himself no less than 700 wives and 300 concubines. And that was probably his biggest mistake because his foreign wives influenced him into worshipping foreign gods. And we read these words in um, over the page in chapter 11 of Kings. We're going the wrong way there. Um, chapter 11 and verse 4. We read, and Solomon, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, as, as was the heart of David his father. And jumping to verse six, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. And he went on then to build temples for idol worship requested by his foreign wives 
So despite his wisdom, Solomon fell from grace in God's eyes. God disapproved of how he conducted himself because Solomon had allowed worldly, uh, worldly wisdom to influence his thinking. And so it was that he fell away from serving the Lord. Now when we come to the New Testament, we read there of a man who was also considered wise by God, but a man who continued in his godly wisdom right to the end of his life. Come with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 2. And we read these words in the opening verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was at the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So Jesus was born. His mother was Mary, his father was God himself, and Jesus as any normal child grew and developed. And we read these words about him, which are significant, in verse 52 of the chapter. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and now, the Gospels tell us a lot about the life of the Lord Jesus. That's the focus of the Gospels. So we ask ourselves the question, in what ways was it that Jesus showed himself to be a man of wisdom? And of course we're thinking about godly wisdom now rather than worldly wisdom, aren't we? Well, the answer lies in the things which he said, the way in which he conducted himself in his life, and his willingness to do his Father's will to the very end of his life. Jesus was a man who had a full understanding of God's plan and purpose and who had the wisdom to explain clearly to others the hope of the gospel message and, and what a life of serving the Lord really meant. God had given him the wisdom to be able to answer his critics and the Pharisees were particularly keen to trap him in what he was saying and yet every time Jesus was able to answer them from um, the very words of scripture on which they were basing their argument. So let's look at two examples. Firstly, the account in Luke chapter 20, when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him about paying taxes to Caesar. So Luke chapter 20 and verse 21. So the Pharisees um, asked um, him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marvelling at his answer, they became silent. So Jesus referred to the image on the coin, on, on that denarius, and to the well-educated 
men of his time who had asked him the question, who were familiar with their scriptures, they knew their scriptures well. I'm sure, in connection with the word image, when Jesus said that, they'd immediately think back to the book of Genesis, where God had said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So all of us have been made in the image of God. And as God's creation, we owe our allegiance to God. We should be serving God in our lives. And yet, given that we live in a world ruled by men, it's our duty to pay the tax that we owe as well. So those were wise words of Jesus. He was able to give them an answer which confounded them, really. They were hoping to have caught him out, but Jesus gave an answer which um, they, they couldn't argue with in any way. Well, our second example is the advice the wise advice which Jesus gave to a young man who, on the face of things, was, was keen and eager to serve the Lord with the hope of gaining eternal life in God's kingdom. It's in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, and in verse 16, we read these words. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, and then he listed various commandments. And in verse 21, or verse 20, he continued, The young man said to, well, the young man said to him, all these have I kept, I've, I've kept the commandments, he says. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So Jesus was speaking wise words to this young man, because he knew that the young man wasn't fully ready to commit himself to serving the Lord. The young man's wealth was potentially a distraction to him, serving the Lord to the very best of his ability. And Jesus was helping him realise that true service to the Lord is learning to make a full commitment and placing full reliance on the Lord for help and guidance throughout our lives. Jesus could see that in that young man, he wanted the very best of both worlds. He wanted to be able to serve the Lord and look forward to the promise of a place in the kingdom. But he was also committed to his wealth. And he didn't want to give it away. The general principle that Jesus was establishing then, the wise principle, was that service to God requires us to make a full commitment. Our service can't be half-hearted, and we mustn't allow other things to get in the way of our service. Well, if we step back from some of the detail of the life of the Lord Jesus, we can look at his life as a whole and see what he achieved. The purpose of his life as determined by God was firstly to demonstrate what a life of service is about for, for anyone who has committed their life to God. So he was, a, he was an example for all of us, wasn't he? And secondly, for Jesus to allow himself, or, or the second purpose of the life of the Lord Jesus, was to allow himself to be crucified to take away the sin of the world. Now sacrifice was required by God in the Old Testament as a way to provide a covering for sin. The, the guilt of, of an individual was paid for through the sacrifice of an animal. 
And all animal sacrifices had to be perfect animals. Nothing that was imperfect was, was ever allowed. But animal sacrifices had to be offered again and again. As those who were, were guilty of sin continued in their sin before the Lord. But in the character of the Lord Jesus, here was someone who was perfect. Someone who was without sin before the Lord. And so here was a perfect sacrifice to take away the sin of the world and to take away our sin. If it is that we associate ourselves through baptism with what Jesus achieved in his life and in his death. And that's a subject which deserves much greater consideration. It's, the, it's actually the very heart of the gospel message. You'll often hear about it talked about in this room from this platform. But it's important in terms of our subject today. Because it helps us in an understanding of how godly wisdom is completely different to worldly wisdom. Come with me, if you will, to um, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians in chapter 1. And we read these words in the first of Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For, for, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What he's saying is that for those who are not interested in serving the Lord and, and gaining the promise of salvation and, and, and life in God's kingdom, what Jesus achieved on the cross is but folly. It's foolishness. It makes no sense. But to those who do want to embrace that hope, then the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, his, his, his death and his resurrection, those things make perfect sense. And they're a demonstration of godly wisdom. Those verses telling us that God uses his wisdom to do things his own way and as his and as his creation it's for us to accept that God's way is the correct way at a first look that the death of one man being able to take away the sin of the world to take away the sin of others it is complete foolishness isn't it but that, that, that's what man's wisdom says but God has set things out very clearly in scripture. By careful and prayerful reading of the scriptures, we're able to come to an understanding of God's wisdom and appreciate that Jesus giving his life in the way that he did was the greatest act of love for his disciples that there has ever been. And we all stand to benefit from what Jesus did if we accept and embrace the gospel message. Well, we thought about Solomon and we've thought about Jesus so who's the third wise man that we want to consider today well it's someone you may or 
may not know well. And we find him or her if we turn back to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, the record tells us that Jesus had been preaching to his disciples about a whole series of different things. He'd been speaking about not judging others. He'd been um, teaching about asking for guidance from God through prayer. He'd been teaching about entering into the kingdom of God through the straight gate, as we talked about this morning. Um, He'd been teaching about being aware of false teachers and the importance of living out in our lives the teaching of, or, or, or his teaching. And towards the end of the chapter, he draws his thoughts together with these words. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. This is what he says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, that he's been speaking forth, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And that really leaves us with a question which we can only answer for ourselves in the context of the challenge which Jesus presents to us. Are we wise enough to accept the teaching of Jesus and respond to it? Do we, as individuals, have the wisdom to explore the teaching that's presented to us in the pages of Scripture and then to embrace the hope of salvation which is on offer to us? Are we wise enough to build our faith on the firm and solid foundation which is presented to us in the word of God or would we rather ignore what God has written down for us and believe in the wisdom of men there is no middle ground it's one thing or the other at the end of the day the choice is ours I want to finish now by reading another Bible passage it's some of the words of Job Job was a man who had his faith tested by God far beyond what most people experience. He lost his family, he lost his wealth, and he lost his health. And yet, throughout his life, he remained faithful to God. Job had three friends who reasoned with him as to why it was that Job had fallen upon such misfortune in his life. And they they advised advised him as to how he should respond. But their reasoning was flawed. And Job remained loyal to his faith and his beliefs. And in answering his friends, one of his replies was about the value of godly wisdom and the importance of searching for it. And if you come with me to Job chapter 28, we read these words. And this is where we'll finish. So Job chapter 28 and reading from verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. 
It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumour of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of, uh, for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil, understanding. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk